go to God in prayer. Our holy God, we uh, we bend our knees before you this morning. Your word is perfect in all its respects, and we come to sit beneath it and to be instructed by it and corrected and trained by it and to be grown up into Christ. And so uh, just we ask that you, you not let us be like those we read of today who would pervert your grace, but rather that we would uh, cling to your grace and rest in it. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Amen. Right, let's stand and read God's word. From Jude chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Now I want to remind you, although you were once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own bounds, their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, I want to start by backtracking a little bit and go ahead and, and I want to read verses 3 and 4 because those are so central to the purpose of Jude and the reason why he's writing is in verses 3 and 4, which is what we covered uh, two weeks ago, and, and uh, this is, is foundational for what we will get into today. So he says in verses 3 and 4, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. <clears throat> for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were de- designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So as as we saw last time, Jude found himself overwhelmed with a weight and a burden to plead with the church to contend earnestly for the faith because there were some very grave threats to the church, people creeping into the church, rotting it from the inside out. And they were ungodly people who perverted the grace of God and deny Christ. And we really, I think, in this passage that we're in this morning, get a sense of the gravity of the situation before us here. Uh, and these people who's, who are subtle and suggestive and, and their influence is something that, that's, that's not to be messed around with. It's kind of like um, Ouija boards or, or crystal meth. You, those are just things you just leave alone, right? Th- these people and their teachings are not... To be messed with. And normally it's interesting that the offense is often enunciated first of these false teachers, but Jude just, he means business. He gets right into condemnation here in these verses. He categorizes these people among those who have perverted the grace of God and they find themselves under the hand of God in his judgment. So Jude lays it out right at the beginning. Contend for the faith. This stuff isn't to be messed with. It is a, a surefire bet to, to land yourself in the flames of hell if we follow these people. Now he illustrates this point with three examples in our text. 
um, the, the wilderness exile people of Israel and the angels and then finally Sodom and Gomorrah. So first, in verse 5, the, the wilderness Israelites. He says in verse 5, Now I want you to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, uh, before we kind of get into the, the Exodus story here, I just want to take kind of a bit of an excursus here. If, if you have any translation really other than the ESV, that any common one, you might notice that, that the ESV says that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, that that's quite interesting. But in, say, the, the New King James, it would say God, I, I think. Or uh, even in the NASB, I think it says God. And uh, so I just want to take a, a brief excursus on this topic before we get into the main point. And I want to kind of discuss two things. Uh, one is textual criticism, which is something I really haven't got into before. And I, I think primarily because I assume you already understand it fairly well but perhaps some don't, and, and it's always good to review. So I want to talk briefly about that and then also talk about Jesus and his role in the Old Testament. Um, so first, textual criticism. I, I just want to treat it with a, really a glancing blow because this is a huge topic and we don't have all day here, but but textual criticism is not the same thing as like higher criticism that you've heard of that undermines the text of Scripture, but it actually helps us discover this text of Scripture. Um, so textual criticism is, is the science and the art of trying to establish what the original manuscripts of Scripture said because we don't have the original manuscript. We have copies of them. Uh, I think the earliest known fragment is, is it's called P52. It's this little like puzzle piece of a, of a papyri, and uh, it's from the Gospel of John, and it's dated from somewhere around 150 A.D. And there are actually some possibilities right now that are being discussed and debated about some potential earlier ones. Um, but that's that's the earliest that we know of, 150 A.D., so a good few generations after the, the originals were written. And, of course, they didn't have word processors or copy machines or, or even the printing press. Then they were copied by hand, and, of course, we're all human. We make mistakes. Some some people maybe were were uncareful with the text of Scripture as they copied it, and so mistakes are contained within the manuscripts of, of the copies of Scripture. Um, so, there, there are because there are mistakes, there are differences between this manuscript and that manuscript. And the job of the textual critic is to figure out, well, what did the original text say? Now, this whole concept sometimes gives people indigestion when they first hear about it, like, you know, I thought the Bible was without error. And it is without error in its original manuscripts, and that's why it's important that we discover what the originals said. And, of course, I'll talk more with you about this later if, if this is of something of interest or concern. But, but, but for me personally, when I look at how God has preserved his word down through history, I'm more confident now looking at that history than I am, say, if somebody walked up to me and said, this floated down to you on a cloud. This is more concrete. This is more real. God has pres preserved his word. Uh, the number of Greek manuscripts that we have from the New Testament, um, just the Greek ones, is f around 5,800 manuscripts compared to seven from Plato. 
No, nobody denies that, that what we have is Plato's thinking, his, his words, right? But for some reason, we, we think that Scripture, the New Testament, is somehow corrupted. And some will say that, that we don't have the original text of Scripture, but as James White likes to say, we actually probably have 110% of original Scripture. That's the problem. It's not that we're missing any portion of it, but we do have it within the manuscript traditions. And it's also good to point out that um, not one of the, the variants, they're called, or differences between manuscripts strikes at the vitals of our faith, of the biblical message. Uh, so that's just a brief, like I said, glancing blow. I'm happy to talk with you more about that topic. But all of that really to say that this difference between Jesus and God in this verse 5 is a textual variant. And I believe that, that, that Jesus is the correct reading. First of all, it has the best attestation from the oldest and best manuscripts. Um, that's one of the rules of textual criticism. You want to look closest to the original. The further you get, the more mistakes you have. So the older ones are generally better. And also another rule of textual criticism is oftentimes the more difficult, the more challenging theological reading is correct. Because if you're a scribe, you want to smooth out the text, right? You want to make it simpler. If it says God already, why in the world would you write Jesus? That would be so confusing. So that's another rule of textual criticism. And so because Jesus is the harder reading theologically, I think it's probably the correct reading. So that leads to our second discussion here on this point of excursus, and that is Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, and that's just to say that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was not dormant during the time of the Old Testament. John and Colossians tell us he was active in creation, that the Father created the universe through the Son. And Hebrews says that he, his job is, is to uphold the universe by the word of his power. In Hebrews, we read about, in, in chapter 11, Moses it said, says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And in 1 Corinthians 10, Talking about in the in the wilderness, it says all the all of the Israelites drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Yeah. So I think we we have this understanding in, in systematic theology that the father's the, the the person that decrees, the son is the person that accomplishes, and the spirit is the person who applies. And I think we see that throughout Scripture, not in the New Testament alone, where it's more clearly displayed but throughout Scripture that that is the way the Trinity functions. So, I think it's both textually correct and theologically accurate, um, and really it brings glory to the Son, Jesus Christ, to say that Jesus saved this people out of Egypt. Which brings us kind of back around to the central theme of the verse which is really uh, the apostasy of these wilderness Israelites. Again, verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So Jude, I think, here is saying, at least you are thinking of going along with these false teachers and the things that you're hearing, just in case you're kind of 
forgetting, I want you to reach back into the recesses of your mind and drag to the forefront something that you already know, this story of the Exodus. It's very familiar to you, and it should provide for us a lesson. Because in the Exodus, God had made great promises to the forefathers of Israel, to Abraham. And really, in Egypt, they found themselves under great distress and in slavery. And God brought them out and began leading them toward the land he had promised. And, and Israel was truly, though they didn't realize it maybe at the time during the 400 years, or maybe they began to doubt, they were God's holy covenant people destined for this promise. Deuteronomy 7, 6-8, through 8, God tells Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other peoples that the Lord has set his love on you and chosen you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh king of Egypt. So we know the story. God brought them out in really dramatic fashion. The, the, the ten plagues, you know, where God systematically kind of defeated all of the gods of Egypt. Or the Passover, this wiping of the blood on the doorposts. Or really, it's funny, but allowing them to, to casually plunder the Egyptians. That they, the Egyptians just gave them all their stuff. <laughs> and then God opened wide the Red Sea and they, they walked across on dry ground and then afterwards drowned the, the Isra- Egyptian army. His mac- God was, was miraculously providing for Israel time and time again as they went through the wilderness. And how, how does Israel respond? Naturally, I think they, they respond by clinging to God and hanging on his every word, right? That's what you would do after all that dramatic events of being brought out of the land of Egypt. But the reality is, what they did is as they came to the land that they were promised, they, they began to say, well, the, the milk and honey sound pretty good, but those guys are huge, and I'm not, I don't want to go in there. I'm afraid they're too big, they're too strong. Never mind that God had been promising this very land to this very people for centuries, or that he brought them out of the land of Egypt for the purpose of possessing this land. They doubted God. Joshua and Caleb spied out the land, and they are two people who actually believed God. And they pleaded with the people in Numbers 14, 7 through 9. They say, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Now the people, again, they respond, Oh yeah, we forgot. You're right. You're right, Caleb and Joshua. What they they said, the whole congregation said, we should stone those guys. And and God had enough there, and he he said, okay, Moses, I'm taking you, I'm going to make a nation out of you. But but Moses pled with him, and God relented. But he gives his judgment, again in, in Numbers 14. God says, as I live, declares the Lord, 
What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of the number listed in the census from twenty years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I should make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones who you said would become prey will bring in, I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. Now, why does Jude bring up this story? Because it's typological in a sense. He's, he doesn't want us to think that just because we are members of the covenant community, members of the redeemed people of God, that somehow we're exempt from the, the sin of unbelief or of apostasy. He says to us, remember the Israelites, how they fell away in unbelief. You too can fall away. This is the same point that's made in Hebrews and Hebrews 3. He says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. He's talking to modern day or first century Christians. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom he was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. One of the most tragic things in the world is apostasy. When our friends who were part of the church apostatize, walk away, or our family members or or leaders in the church or whole churches. The last thing in the world that I want to see is a member of the church turned away at the gates of heaven in judgment because he did not believe. So I, I urge you with Jude this morning, make your calling and election sure. How do we do that? Um, a number of ways, I think, scripturally. First John 5.12 says, If you have the Son, you have life. So do you have the Son? Check yourself on that. Do you have the Son? Are you resting in His finished atoning work for your sins? Are you trying to atone for them yourself? Are you abiding in the vine by faith? Are you bearing fruit commensurate with a life in the vine? Are you bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you love the brethren? Are you being transformed from one degree of glory to the next? If we can't answer these questions in the affirmative, then really it's not my purpose here to encourage you to work harder to become a better Christian if you can't answer those things in the affirmative, but rather I want to encourage you to fall on your knees before the living God in repentance and to place your faith once and for all in the sacrifice of Christ and plead with him that he would make you one with the Son. Now what if, what if we do have assurance? If we're confident we're Christians, are these warnings not for us? Are they not meant for us, but only for those tares amongst the, the weak? The weak? Are they only for those people or are they for true believers? It's an important question to ask because the last thing I want for a true believer to do is doubt the effectiveness of the blood of Christ. It's a promise to us that those whom the Father has given to him, to Christ, will never be snatched from his hand. That's a promise that we have. 
But on the other side, to, to quote J.C. Ryle, it would have been well for the Church of Christ if the warnings of the gospel had been studied as much as the promises. If it's true that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, I think it's also true that faith is sustained by hearing and, hear, and faith sustained by the, the word of Christ. That is to say, the gospel in all its fullness and its promises and its warning is for us as believers, as from the youngest to the most mature believer. So these warnings ought not to make us doubt our election and our salvation, but they should spur us on to, to fight that fight till we get to the end, to finish the race. Does that make sense, what, what I'm saying there, that when I say that the, our faith is sustained by the word of Christ? It is to say that the warnings in this instance are the very means by which our faith is guarded. This is the word of Christ, and it's warning us that perhaps the very reason we do not apostatize is that we've been warned by Scripture not to apostatize, and the Spirit has applied those truths and warnings to our hearts. So, the warnings of Scripture are not just a call to the goats to turn and repent, but also a sustaining means of God's grace in the lives of the sheep. So, we as believers who have assurance need to take the warnings of God seriously. So I think ultimately here what Jude is saying in verse 5 is this, is that as you encounter these various people and various doctrines that would corrupt the faith of the covenant community, we need to recall, bring to mind the Exodus and how those people of the covenant community fell away in unbelief and reaped a harvest of destruction. We need to let that be a warning to us, to believers and unbelievers in the congregation alike. And in this way, he is showing us how, really Jude is showing us how to contend for the faith. Okay, second example, and these second two I'll be a little more brief on. Second example is the angels in verse 6. It says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And this is not an easy verse, but I think what Jude is doing here in this second example is he's using an illustration from well-known, commonly available literature. Um, and that literature is this book of pseudepigraphal book of First Enoch. In First in Enoch, we have uh, the story of the Watchers, and it's interesting because this story is referenced clearly and undeniably later on in the book. It's also referenced in First Peter, um, so it, it's it's on Jude's mind, and they 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 knew this book. So in First Enoch, we have the story of the Watchers, which is these angels who came down from heaven because they found women human women to be attractive and they had children with these women who were called the Nephilim and we have that story in Genesis chapter 6 um, two, and four, 2 through 4 where it says the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them these were the mighty men who were of old. 
the men of renown. There's a number of theories about this passage in, in Genesis 6, about what it means and um, what it might be happening. And really, it's a very difficult passage. And the truth is, we probably just best to say we don't know. Um, I don't want to necessarily rule out the possibility that there could have been some kind of angelic human interbreeding going on. Some people believe that. Um, but for me, that, that theory raises more questions than it answers. Um, namely, how do, and this is what we talked about in Sunday school, probably spiritual beings uh, who neither marry or are given in marriage, how do they procreate with human women? Um, I, I can't get over that for that theory, but it is a difficult text, and I think it's best to say we don't know, but I lean toward the theory that the sons of God here are the descendants of Seth and that they began to take for themselves worldly wives from the line of, of Cain, and that they had children who were particularly large and scary and fierce. Um, but I, I confess, this is a difficult passage. But the reason Jude here references this interpretation found in First Enoch is not because he endorses it necessarily, but because it's an illustration he can use from popular l- literature, like we could use The Lord of the Rings, for example. So I, I don't think he believes everything in First Enoch or counts it as scripture. For example, uh, in in First Enoch, the Nephilim are 450 feet tall. I, I don't think Jude bought into to that. But if you read the story, it's striking the similarities between what Jude is saying and what in First Enoch. So just a few examples um, from ta- chapter 10 in First Enoch. Says and further, this is after all of this stuff went down with the women and the angels. The Lord said to Raphael, "Bind Az- Azel, who is the kind of the leader of this troop of wicked angels, bind him by his hands and feet and throw him into the darkness, and split open the desert which is called Dudael and throw him there and throw on him jagged and star- sharp stones and cover him with darkness, and let him stay there forever and cover his face so that he may not see the light." And so that on the great day of judgment, he may be hurled into the fire. So remember, he's an angel. You can't kill an angel. So throw him in, in the center of the earth. Cover him with darkness until the day of judgment comes around. And that's what we have in Jude. They're in gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. And then verse 15, or chapter 15 of, of First Enoch says, God asks, for what reason have you abandoned the high, holy, and eternal heaven? and slept with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of the people. That is why I formerly did not make wives for you, for the dwelling of the spiritual beings of heaven is heaven. So you see there this idea that's in Jude, very clearly, they did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So so it seems quite clear to me that Jude is referencing First Enoch, and there's really a broader Jewish tradition around this story in, in Genesis 6. So it seems like he's referencing something that would have been in the, in the minds of the people of the time. So all of that to say, we, we see in this story that these angels departed the natural plan of God. They, they left the natural plan of God, perverting what he had graciously given them, and then the result is that they will face judgment. And that's a, a pattern, really, that's developing here, is there's this pattern of grace, a perversion of the grace, a, a denial, a neglect of the grace, and then following judgment and that's what we'll see in a moment here with Sodom and Gomorrah that's what we see with the heretics in Jude and really what we see oftentimes today 
So this whole passage, 5 through 7, is a difficult passage in terms of details, but the point is very simple. It's very straightforward. It's an illustration of the seriousness of the threats infiltrating the, the church. And it's a call to contend for a, a persevering faith. When we're under the threat of those who pervert the grace of God and our, our pied pipers leading us away into judgment, we need to be watchful. We need to be very careful. That's the, the point. So if we pervert the grace of God, or if we play fast and loose with nature, with the way he's set things up, the created order, judgment is a certainty. That, that's what we see here. We saw it in Second Peter as well. In chapter 2, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, again, that's a reference to First Enoch, I believe, but cast them into hell and committed to them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under the judgment, then the Lord knows how also to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So God and his truth are not like aids or helps in this life, but his truth and himself are and his established order are to be taken really with the utmost of seriousness and reverence. Our, our eternal futures are, at what, are what's at stake here when we talk about these subjects. So again, this, this is what we see one more time in um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is in verse 7. It says in verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude draws here a comparison between the watchers of first Enoch, those angels, and of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. And we, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah where God appears to Abraham with the two angels and God and Abraham kind of have this back and forth, and Abraham keeps working him down. If there's, you know, this many people, I forget the numbers, 50, he won't destroy it, right? And he keeps getting lower and lower until it's just, I forget, maybe you can remind me, but five or ten people that God won't destroy the city if there's that many righteous people. And so then the, the angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's at the gate, and the, the, the laws of hospitality at the time compelled him to invite these men, these angels, into his home. And the minute the city began to knock on the door, desiring to know these men sexually. And, of course, Lot said, you know, go away. And he went outside to reason with them and strangely offered them his daughters, which I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I can't imagine offering that. But um, So the, the people were probably about to, to kill Lot, and the angels pulled Lot back inside, and then they blinded the men. And the men were so overwhelmed with passion that in their blindness they continued to grope for the door so that they could know these men. Of course, these angels save the family of Lot, but Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. So the watchers were like these, these people of Sodom and Gomorrah um, because both of their sins were perversions of God's natural order. The watchers sought re relations with human women and the Sodomites sought homosexual relations. Now some argue that the unnatural desire here, or strange flesh as it, as it is in some translations, is a desire to have sexual relations with angels. Um, but there's no indication here that they knew ahead of time that they were angels. They're, they're just visitors, men, visiting the city. And also, it's important to notice that the, the, 
the condemnation of Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities preceded all these events with Lot. God was already going to destroy them. They were already a wicked people. So just like the Israelites, and just like the watchers, and just like the false teachers, they perverted the grace of God. It's interesting, in Genesis we read of, of Lot and Abraham parting ways, and Lot says, well, I'm going to go down here because it looks good, it looks green, it's, it's a, a good land. This is the land that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were given by God. And rather than glorifying God with his good gifts, the people of the land fell into a, a licentious indulgence. God is a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Our God is a consuming fire. Sodom and Gomorrah stands as an example of this to us. Eternal fire awaits those who pervert the grace of God. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the Tanguska event in in. Uh, Russia in 1908, but this, um, what is it, um, the proper term, meteorite? <laughs> a meteor came down, and what they believe happened was it came down and exploded above the earth, and there's this site in Siberia where all the trees just, <laughs> in a circle, and, you know, shockwave for miles and miles and miles, and it, they believe it was probably a 50 megaton explosion, like that's the biggest largest hydrogen bomb that's ever been exploded by man is 50 megatons. And really there's evidence they found, probably found Sodom and Gomorrah north of the Red Sea, and there's evidence there that a similar event happened, this Tanguska-like event, this explosion. And um, they've dug down and, and they've gone through the Iron Age and then all of a sudden it's abandoned. And for five, 600 years there's nothing. And then all of a sudden people start coming back. So there was this catastrophic event this is what God did to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, probably, or something like it. But it's interesting to me, I think about, you know, a 50 megaton explosion above. They probably wouldn't have even known about it. Probably wouldn't have been that scary. They'd have been vaporized in an instant. But what is very scary is what would have followed death. That is, to fall into the hands of the living God. Because that's what he says here. They're an example to us, not just because they got destroyed, but because they got are under eternal fire. So if they, Sodom and Gomorrah, who had so little revelation from God, faced such a fierce judgment, how much more we, who have the revelation of God and a completed canon and having the Word been made flesh already. As Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So as we read by Jesus and in Revelation, we, we, we need to come to a point where we say, with these warnings, let those who have ears to hear, hear the warnings and take them to heart. So I urge you this morning to, to take very seriously the call here to contend for the faith faith of, of the threats against the church and i urge you to persevere in your faith in the faith once for all delivered to the saints by abiding in christ now, jesus has a passage in matthew where he describes for us what i think it's like to stand for the faith so matthew chapter 10 
And I'll close here. Matthew 10, 14 through 22. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And I say of of this congregation with Paul, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work will bring it to you, bring it to completion at the last day of Jesus Christ.